Ponderings Universe, your host here, Ron Rapitalo, and we have one of my favorite, favorite people from my NYU world, Yesenia Gomez. Yesenia has been a longtime friend, someone I've known for, dare I say, oh God, I'm dating myself, 25 years, and we've been through the ringer from student leadership, through lucha parties, through going to Gantis, to just career changes and being supportive of each other's lives and careers. So uh, what you'll hear in Yesenia's story is this tale of resilience and spirituality and being able to trust in herself and the people who love and care about her. And so very, very excited to have Yesenia's story here on the mic. Check us out, leveragepublishinggroup.com. We ghostwrite, edit, and publish first-time authors. Peace. Ronderings Universe, we got another, another, another treat for y'all. I've been looking to have my dear friend from my NYU world, Yesenia Gomez, as a guest on my podcast, who I know through our NYU world of being involved in all things Latino, Latina, Latinx. We were very involved in Lucha. I was the honorary Latino of my Filipino culture who hung out with all the cool Latinos on campus. And Yesenia, you know, led Herencia Latina. She was, uh, did you have an offer position in, in Lucha at some point? I'm trying to remember. I don't I did. I did. was like a secretary, cultural chair, Diablo. consultant. <laughs> like 80 <laughs> roles, my God. But Ron Durings fam. The brilliant Yesenia Gomez. Yesenia, um, how are you doing? I am so well in this rainy day, actually making some sopa de res, <laughs> Salvadoran beef soup, <laughs> which has plantains, yuca, uh, potatoes. My missus is making beef stew. We have beef oh. um, defrosting. I think she's making it either. I think she's making it tomorrow because it's probably it's, needs to defrost a little bit more. So oh, this is the perfect weather okay. for it. Yes, it is. Stew season. Yeah. Well, you're standing <laughs> oh my- before. Yeah. Before I ask you to give your story, I need to uh-huh. let the audience know that Yesenia has gone through a number of career arcs. And right now uh, she works at Cornell University supervising community educators in a role focused on wellness and nutrition in the five boroughs. And she side hustle. She is an incredible incredible chef. How does Ron Rapazella know that? Because I had the privilege of her cooking brunch for my wife's birthday some years back. And I'm still licking my fingers thinking of the fortune. Yes, Cuban inspired brunch. Yes. yes. I made a platano hash. I remember that was unique for everyone. (laughs) (laughs) I'm getting hungry. It was such a lovely time. Yeah. Well, thank you, Yesenia. As we start this episode, tell us, ¿cuál es tu cuenta? What is your story? ¿Cuál es mi historia? Historia, yes. Yes, yes. It's so interesting. I was thinking about that um, earlier today. And I think to myself, for an immigrant, for some reason, I think of my story starting when I arrived in Brooklyn, New York, when I was nine years old. For Mm. some reason, that's my starting point. Every yeah. time I talk about myself versus mm. the eight, nine years that I lived in El Salvador, yeah. which shaped me as a child and right. all those memories still, you know, growing up in a civil war, immigrating mm-hmm. to this country. 
I tend to leave that off my story, but um, Salvadoreña. And by the way, Ron, I didn't realize you weren't Latino until today. Just <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, look, I, y'all know how much I love y'all. You know my friend group, right? It's just like, I am the honorary Latino who happens you to be are. Filipino. But then the culture of Filipinos, I think, has so much in common with the Latinx diaspora. So. Yes. Well, you just tend to embrace all cultures as a person anyway. But um, yeah. <laughs> so my story, yes, I am from El Salvador. I came here, Brooklyn, uh, Brighton Beach. Okay. Because of a civil war in El Salvador. Definitely all about Latino culture. Yes, when I was at NYU, I was highly involved mm. in empowerment and, you know, anything that dealt with food and culture. But I've always been the only Salvadoran in the room for a very, very long time. Mm. And as much as that makes me proud, it also makes me a little sad, you know? Mm. I've been a chef. I've been a marketing manager. Mm. I've been a brand ambassador. I've been a taster. (laughs) What haven't I done? I don't know. You tell me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've bartended. Um, mm. I, I definitely like to keep life interesting and, uh, and moving. But if there's one thing that I know about myself and that most people know about myself is that I tend to be very real and, mm. you know, I bring my personality wherever I go. So, yeah. Well, I want to, pinpoint on something that you said that I think has been a theme for a number of my guests on Ronderings mm-hmm. is feeling like you're the only one in the room of your identity, or at least the identity that like one of your primary identities, in this case, being a Salvadoreña. Um, mm-hmm. Talk about that. Like, how did that feel growing up? How did you navigate that? I always felt that I had to talk about my culture. And mm. I think, and especially in New York, most people are of Puerto Rican descent or Dominican descent or Mexican descent. That's right. And so as Latinos, we tend to be grouped as one thing. But it's 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 a good thing where we have lots of similarities, but there's also lots of differences. Yes. And so I've always brought my food into like for example Polucha, the cultural event that I remember, cultural gala. Do you remember when we were like yes. 18, 19 years old wearing gowns? Oh, oh my gosh, it's a long time. <laughs> uh, let me not say the age that was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Goodness. not not the year. Yeah. And I remember bringing pupusas uh, yes. for everyone to taste because everyone knows tacos, but no one knows pupusas and it's it's an ancient food from El Salvador. It's, you know, corn, pocket, stuff with cheese and pork, mm. with native plants uh, and grilled with curtido, which is a pickled cabbage and sauce. And I remember Mariana Paricio, who's also one of our friends. She yes. was so happy that oh. I went to Brooklyn and got us like 300 pupusas for this cultural gala. And that was my way of introducing people to Salvadoran culture and also talking about the civil war, also talking about Mm. the, you know, the differences that we had, but bringing out like, what else was different? Let me me think. 
uh, pupusas, food, our dances. We, you know, I used to dance cumbia, not salsa. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I always felt like I had to bring in something so to make people aware that we existed. Yeah. That resonates with me. It's interesting because like in terms of Asian American subgroups, there are a good amount of Filipinos, mm-hmm. right? Amongst Asian American subgroups, we might be second or third in terms of population in America, right? Okay. And I've always felt like in a lot of Asian American groups that I've been in, I've been one of the only. And sometimes amongst being amongst Filipinos, because of the way I grew up, I felt like one of the only the way that I grew up. Mm-hmm. I didn't have parents, you know, that were from the suburbs, right? You know, I grew mm-hmm. up around the way in East Flatbush and you know, Jamaica Queens. And I think my inflections and the way that I saw the world growing up amongst a lot of black and brown folks, I of course saw the world differently. And so I think what you're saying about being the only and like wanting to elevate your culture and talk about it, I think is something you and I have a, have a lot in common. Yes, absolutely. And even nowadays as a chef, what I went through was when companies would call me to do like a certain cooking class, like Latin-based cooking class, for their employees, I would also quickly say, hey, mm. here's a Salvadoran dish that you yes. may want to introduce to the population in your company. Amen. That's right. And so, like, for example, for Dell, I did so many cooking classes for them, but I did also Salvadoran cooking classes. And it was amazing. Most people think of quesadillas as being a Mexican dish. but we, Our quesadillas are actually a sweet cheesecake. Uh- <laughs> yeah, it's a dessert or a breakfast food or a snack food and and it's it's pan, it's pan dulce that's made with with grated Salvadoran cheese. So even things like that, yeah. you know, I brought into my business and yeah. I brought into my classes and my education about my culture. Yeah. yeah. Well, to talk about culture in El Salvador, I want us to go back. You said something in your story that you usually have started to when you came to America. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to those first eight or nine years of El Salvador. What was that Yesenia like? What did you, what were you, bring us a, a picture of a sense that of that Yesenia before you came to America. Well, that Yesenia was a sweet young girl, uh-huh. <laughs> very innocent. Okay. I went to school in, and I was, I lived in a small village and my mom actually came to the U.S. and when I was five years old. So I have two sisters. My youngest sister's only a year younger. I'm sorry, my middle sister's a year younger and my youngest sister was 11 months. So we stayed with my aunt who had six children. We lived on a farm. So mm. I experienced such a world that I think also has influenced my chef life as well. Yeah. Where I grew up on trees, tasting mangoes. I would sit up there in the, you know, mango tree and mm-hmm. pulling the mangoes fresh. Yeah. And papayas and limes and guayabas and cornfields. And like all of this was quote unquote organic, right? So it's yes. just it, those memories are so ingrained in my, in my life. And I did go to a very humble school. Um, it was made out, it was three classrooms made out of Adobe and I played in the mud and, mm. okay. <laughs> you 
you know? Yeah. And it was two grades in each room. And I went to that school for, I think, up until I was in the third, fourth grade. So I loved playing in the with uh with making mud tortillas and climbing trees and all that stuff i you know if it wasn't for the war and all the things that i went through as a child which because that had a dark also dark side to living in el salvador because i was telling elizabeth who you know oh my god all these names that i'm going to be talking about of course of course who's uh, also another nyu student uh nyu friend i said to her you know, I don't want to talk about what's going on in the other side of the world because it's very triggering for me as a child. Right. And that dark side of that story is, you know, going under beds and listening to bombs and seeing, you know, airplanes and all of that stuff and playing outside with my sisters and having to run inside and seeing confrontations in front of my house, fleeing at night, going to my grandmother's home for safety, not coming back home, and then being ripped from my family, from from my country, and then Mm -hmm. arriving here. So it was definitely a child that had, you know, ups and downs. And uh, it's also a common story (laughs) for a lot of people growing up in, you know, third world countries that were going through yeah. 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 I mean, I have friends who, you know, were Vietnamese, who are Cambodian, you know, mm-hmm. folks who've come from, you know, these situations where imperialism and, you know, war, many, I would argue, I think why I eventually came here, right, was because of what Marcos did. You know, the Philippines martial law was instituted a number of months before my mom and my six siblings came in 72. My dad mm-hmm. came two years before. And so understanding the history of Marcos, you then have to understand the history of American imperialism, right? He was propped up by the Americans, right? And so it's just crazy. Like, I don't know what's happening in El Salvador politically, but in the Philippines politically right now, what happened Mm -hmm. under the Marcoses in the 70s and 80s, at some level has been retold, quote unquote, in a way where it wasn't that bad. In fact, his son is now the president of the Philippines because of the misinformation and things that were shared that basically whitewashed what happened in the Philippines under the Marcoses. I mean, it's like really nutty stuff if you think about like these patterns and things that happen, right? It's really crazy how much those things affect so many of us that are now here in America. I would argue, I don't know if I've ever been here myself if things were much better back home, frankly. Right. I don't know. I, I'm not sure. Probably not. And yeah. we don't know who that Ron would have been, right? <laughs> yeah. He would have been uh, a, you know, a media tycoon. I don't know. Just in a different way. <laughs> that's, my, that's my aspiration, you said. I'm an aspiring media mogul is one of my new titles. Oh, hey. You visualize it. It's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's get into, let's fast forward a little bit where you and I intersect. Our world of NYU. Talk about Yesenia at NYU. What was going on with you then? <gasps> like, what was yeah. that, Yesenia? Interestingly enough, I was talking to someone. I was at a college fair yesterday okay. in Queens, and I was talking to the CUNY admissions lady who was next to me about how NYU was the only school that I applied to. <laughs> that in Brooklyn College. Brooklyn College was my backup. and. Yeah. NYU 1993. 
<laughs> yeah. And uh, NYU is probably my experience there was, I don't know, the most amazing. I gra- it took me five years to graduate because of financial reasons. Yeah. And I'm not ashamed to say that I yeah. had to yeah. go through lots of, you know, struggles and uh, finan- uh, paying for college was very, very difficult. Yeah. And so it's where I met all of my best friends. It's where I met my family, my tribe, you know, it's where I've met, yeah. you know, my godson, his mom is, is Elizabeth. She's, she's yeah. my best friend. We grew, we all grew up together. And uh, mm. besides that, I really worked hard. I yeah. worked hard because English is my second language. So I didn't have the academic uh, support um, that I, you know, like every other Latino inner urban child kid has here in Brooklyn. <laughs> so I needed to study harder and yeah. I needed to focus more. And I also had a lot of issues at home with domestic violence. And, uh, mm-hmm. and that was also really hard. Uh, I think I shared with most of my Lucha friends yeah. and they were just huge support. It was it was so interesting because when I share that story or that part of my life, then uh, other stories started emerging. And I think that with Jose Mata, with a lot of our friends, that's how we even bonded. We bonded even more. Um, so when I graduated, I am and I was the first college graduate from mm. my family and yes. my family. Yeah. Yes. And uh and then after that, my cousins have been, you know, graduating and, and my family and it's been, it's a bunch of us now. So I'm really proud of that. Yeah. It was tough. It was rough, but it was one of the best things. Yeah. I wouldn't change it for the world, even if I have student loans to pay. <laughs> yeah. Those things. Yes. Where is loan forgiveness happening? Um <laughs> So it sounds like you've been a pioneer for your family. Like how, like you, you mentioned that a number of other cousins and family members have also become college graduates. Like how do they see Yesenia? Like when they look up to Yesenia, who's this Yesenia they know? It's interesting. You know me, I, I am a very, I think I'm a humble person and I, I don't always feel comfortable being, having a spotlight. I do things out of love and I do things out of passion and I do things because I care and so when yeah. my cousins, my younger cousins text me and they're like, I'm so proud of you because I'm so, I look up to you, you yeah. know, all these things, it makes me really emotional. But then I think to myself, yeah. I didn't do it for those reasons. Like I, I did it because this is something I always wanted to do or, you know, but um, knowing that I'm a role model for so many people. Oh, it's amazing. At the same time, it makes me nervous because then I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't want to let anyone down, things like that. But um, yeah, I I have gotten so much positive feedback from my family and my friends. Yeah. And I think one of like the highlights that you're aware of is that people in Espanol cover. Oh my God. <laughs> yes. Yes. Talk about that. That was, that was like just a different thing in my life you know, uh, being on that cover and getting that photo shoot and just telling my story, uh, being a diabetic type two and all that stuff, how it's evolved and how I've empowered people. And because of that story now, because diabetes runs in my family now, 
my cousins, my younger cousins are writing to me and saying, hey, I, I'm diabetic. I didn't know that, you know, I didn't know that this ran in our family. You know, that's another story that, that my family is very proud of and that I'm sharing and empowering them too. So, Well, let's fast forward now because the work that you do, right? Doing wellness and nutrition, supporting community educators through Cornell. Talk to us about that work, the kind of joy you get out of it and, you know, how you're providing resources so that folks can have more wellness and nutrition, not only information, but ways of being that are going to be healthier in their lives. Wellness and nutrition. It's a topic that I believe that our culture or many of our cultures don't talk about. Mm. And we have high blood pressure and diabetes, and we have all of these illnesses, cholesterol, Mm -hmm. heart illness. Because of my own story with my family and getting diagnosed with type 2 diabetes in my early 30s and then becoming a chef and now in this role, it is full circle. Let me tell you something. It definitely fires me every day. Like I just feel this fire inside of me that it's important. I'm not doing the face-to-face work per se anymore, which is what I was doing before this job. My educators are doing that. And I've seen them in action and they do it in English. Some do it in Spanish. Some do it in Bangla. They do it Creole. And like we're uh, in this communities. Uh, we are in the heart of our, of our community just explaining to people things that maybe you know wrong that are like, you know, eat whole grains and low-fat dairy and lean proteins and all these things, because I know you're into nutrition too, but that no one ever took the time to explain it to someone like my mom. And and that just, that cycle just kept going, you know, all these these children with type 2 diabetes, children. Um, It's just, it's become my mission. It really has. And so I'm very proud to be able to mentor and coach others to be able to do that work but they they some of them have been there for numerous years and they are doing such phenomenal phenomenal work yeah i mean something that i found in my own upbringing around particularly philippine cuisine which will probably sound very similar to all the stories you live your educators live which is it's access to these kinds of high quality foods and ingredients, right? Which oftentimes growing up in a low income neighborhood, you think about the the grocery markets and places you can shop in, right? Oftentimes the produce isn't as good, the meat's not as good, et cetera, et cetera. And the ways that I would strongly argue the history of colonialism and the things that were uplifted, for example, the Philippines, right? The introduction of spam in World War II, like food, right? Spam becomes, mm-hmm. look, on occasion, I'm not knocking Spam. It is quite delicious on occasion. <laughs> but to eat that stuff every morning, like mm-hmm. a very traditional Philippine breakfast, eggs, some kind of meat, fried rice. Mm. It's it's delicious, mind you, right? <laughs> if you think about like, where's the, there's not a fruit, there's not, it's, it's fascinating. And the history of our peoples, I would argue, is before colonialism, we ate much healthier. We didn't have these processed things. Oh, so some of it wow. is, I think, our taste buds culturally oh, yeah. 
have been built to expect certain things. And if you, you know, Michael Polian talks about, you know, certain tastes, you know, in terms of like the salt and the sugar or the fat, like those things, you know, and the way that foods are processed have been put in such overdrive, the very things that we believe are tasty have been processed and built to be addictive. Oh yeah. Right. And so how do you like unprogramming people to understand you can still have your culture of food and made in a way that still is delicious, but isn't as like uber, uber processed and fatty and salty because that stuff just absolutely like kills our bodies. Right, 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 right. I don't like to demonize cultural food and I don't like to bring up the negative when I talk to certain populations. Yeah. The approach that I take, actually, and that I've always taken, especially when I was teaching. See, mm. as we talk, you're going to hear about the hundred jobs I've had, right? No, you can he's <laughs> like, Ron, you know, that one time I did this. And I was like, man, you said, yeah, how? When did you sleep, girl? Goodness. <laughs> For example, when I was teaching all the kids and, and you know, cooking classes in the mm-hmm. Department of Education. I, I've been I've been doing that for the last seven years. Yeah. My approach was to to introduce them and expose them to real food, to real vegetables, to real I don't want to say real vegetables, unprocessed, you yeah. know, right. vegetables. Yeah. How to make their platano chips. When they made their own plants and chips, they were like, is that easy? <laughs> <laughs> right. And they seasoned it with garlic and sea salt, and they were just having the best of time, cayenne, et cetera. Um, And so that's my approach is like, I also didn't want these kids to go home and tell their grandmother, well, Chef Jess said that how you make that stew is wrong. (laughs) Right. No, no, no. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Yeah. That's always been my goal is to always bring up the positive of our cultural foods, you know, and Talk about how to eat various colors and mm. various grains. I yeah. also don't tell many people not to eat white, white rice because when you tell folk not to do something, they feel guilty about it. They feel shame. And being a diabetic, I feel that everyone wants to shame you. It's your fault you're a diabetic. It's your fault that you didn't take care of yourself. It, you must be eating all the cake, you know. And mind you, it had to do because I was eating way too many foods of the same color, most Mm. likely white. (laughs) Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Think about it. So it's like, yeah, you're going to have that egg and that maybe the little bit of rice, but what's missing there? Maybe some greens, maybe some orange, maybe some red. And when you talk to children, which is where I think we need to start, uh, you start teaching them how to visualize their food and their plate and all of those things. So that's been my approach. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really smart approach. Cause when I think about the things in life where I've myself changed, it's become, you know, how do I supplement and add to and eventually yes. replace as I saw fit. Right. You know, once again, there's nothing where, I mean, I, I had McDonald's for lunch because, because I did, right. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's raining. And that's what we ordered and we'll have something healthier later. And it's, you know, it's just, you know, for me, like, I think these principles, I wanted to uplift, right. Making sure what you eat has multiple colors over time, over, over a day, I think is a really important concept, right. Cause that's, that's a very easy visual thing to see, right. And understand. And then too, like, you know, there's a certain level of like living moderation, right. And let like yeah. you are living to like, you know, 
I don't know, be on the cover of a magazine or something like that. But I, I think just the vast majority of us, I mean, I think about the way my diet is in my own powerlifting competition training, which I'm undergoing right now. I eat okay. I mean, if I'm being really, really honest with you about the way that I eat, I think I have been able to get away with because of the way that I work out. I generally eat well enough. You know, mm-hmm. I would say on a scale of one to 10, my diet's probably a five. Hmm. And arguably, most people's diets are probably two or threes. I, I just, mm-hmm. th- some of it is like, you know, on some swings, my diet is better, but like, I love eating well. I like eating, yeah. what I, you know, and it's just, it's this, it's a balance. And some of it is being able to like know that if I don't eat well enough, my body reminds me. Like if I ate McDonald's yeah. like every other day, no, yeah. Bueno. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I, I just, I, I know what my body should feel like when I'm eating well. I feel lighter. I feel more energetic. I should not feel like. Yes. And I, I like, go After I that. eat, that is not, something's off. That's how, that's the signal to my body for sure. It's interesting because when I was a private chef, I would come home and then I would cook for myself. And mm. folk are really friends were like, you seriously cook every night? And I'm like, yes, I do. It's my way of mm. making sure that I'm eating the right things for myself because being a chef is so demanding on my on your body, on your physical energy. Yes. That if I didn't care the next day, I would wake up all foggy, all tired, fatigued and, and low energy. And so um, you probably eat more on an eight than a five. I don't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I just, you know, I'm hard on myself in that regard because it's the one thing in my wellness journey that if I got better at, I've had people tell me this for a minute who like have seen my body the way I work out. Like my uh, physical workout is kind of uber disciplined. I have a structure. I'm very, I watch videos. I'm pretty, but when it comes to food, like I have the same things that everyone does. Like I like to eat what I like to eat. You love right? joy. <laughs> I do. I do. No, I'm all about like enjoying, you know, we, we ordered Philippine food yesterday. And so oh. we had garlic fried rice and pork barbecue and lumpia. Like, honestly, like that food, I would never say like, if it's put in front of me, Yesenia, or you put pansa palau, I'm not going to say no, like ever. I just also know I have that in moderation like that's probably once every two weeks at most once every like i don't it's not a abundant thing that i try to eat because i know if i ate that it it is a accumulation effect and i think that's why um doing this work with in the community and doing cultural sensitive food or nutrition is so important to me because growing up and you know and then when i was diagnosed going to the right nutritionist Mm. changed my life and the nutritionist that I found was Dominican. And she Look said to me, you mm. are not going to stop eating rice and beans. You are just not. You're not going <laughs> to stop eating your platanos. You're just not. And yeah. as much as you try, back then, I didn't even eat quinoa. Like, I didn't know what that was. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's like quinoa. Um, yeah, quinoa. And that's a Peruvian. That's a Latin American grain, actually. But it just mm. wasn't part of my Salvadoran culture. Yeah. So finding the right people, the right nutritionists, and unfortunately, there are not a lot of nutritionists who are Black and Latino oh, or Filipino right. or H. So that makes a big difference. That's a big difference. That's why, I don't know. I feel like I have so much work to do. <laughs> yeah, the, the, having 
I mean, you taught in the DOE, right? And so mm-hmm. having cultural competence, cultural understanding to yeah. be able to reach our folks, right? Because the patterns come up again and again in so many sectors where it's like, when you have diverse teams, it's going to make more money. You have folks who look like the kids that are being taught, right? The gains, not only in academics, but around cultural metrics go through the roof. And this is all kids, right? They've talked about this with black teachers. They're not just good for black students, they're good for all kids, Mm -hmm. right? And so these patterns of like, what, like, when you think about the work you're doing, what would, if, if I was some person in a position of power to say, we have the money and the resources to get more folks who look like us to be in nutrition, be in wellness, to be in these fields, right? Be in social work. That's another one. You know, yeah. for every like David Martinez and Jose Mata, name other Latinos who do social work. I'm like, uh, exactly. uh, <laughs> I mean, there are more. You know what I'm saying? Like, what would you yeah. advise from like your lived experience of like being on the ground and doing this work and seeing still so few of us doing this. It is. So few of us. So few of us. And it's important to bring more and to also empower the ones that are doing this work because it becomes exhausting at some point. Yeah. You know, but I'm here to stay for a while. And it's just, I, I think that I've heard this saying, Oh, I read it somewhere. Probably Facebook. <laughs> ah, that's where you get all we get all of our information, right? Uh-oh. That we tend to choose careers, or we tend to do things when we're adults that we would have wished we had when we were children, hmm. right? Or we choose paths or journeys that we wish someone would have done for us, you know, things like that. And uh, I know for me, nutrition was a big part of my life, or maybe, I wouldn't say malnutrition, but just having a mom who worked seven days a week, you know, someone asked me, did you learn how to cook for my mom? And I thought, no, she barely was home. I did all the cooking. So Uh, the lack of having someone cooking mm. all the time is where my interest in cooking came from. You know, people understand how cultural foods can be healthy or how they may not may need some adjusting, et cetera, comes from that same story. You know, my mom being a diabetic and not sharing it with anybody for a decade Mm. because of the shame or the misunderstanding or not knowing. She says to me, I didn't know that there was no information. She says no one gave her a pamphlet and explained it to her. So it's crazy. in the current work that I'm doing or that I've been doing, having that information available in mm-hmm. Spanish. Yes. You know how many workshops I've done in Spanish? How many classes and people have asked me to do cooking classes and nutrition in Spanish because it's so ignored. And that whole population doesn't get any information at all. Yeah. Still, in a place like New York City, where the Latino population is so ginormous, that is absolutely not only bonkers, but I wish I could say that I'm surprised. I'm not surprised. Right. You know, I'm not surprised. So I've partnered with a lot, like on my own, when I, you know, was doing a lot of cooking classes on my own, my own business. I partner with a few clinics. I partner with a few what they call community-based organizations just to do this, this work. And some of them I wouldn't even charge just because when you 
for me, it, it was more about giving out the information and cooking. Like, yeah, you can talk someone blue, you know, until you turn blue about nutrition. But if you don't make that food... <laughs> it's food is it's not head work like you have to make it taste it see it smell it there's something about i could see like the joy you have when you talk about cooking the joy that i remember when you came over our apartment to do that cuban inspired brunch you had such um the audience won't really get to know Yesenia the way that I've got to know Yesenia. Yeah. And I wish they could see your smile and, and, and me like describing <laughs> like the joy of you cooking and the food. There was yeah. something where you were literally like, and my palms are burning. So you know what's going to come up when I'm asking you next because my palms uh-huh. are burning, right? Is there was something deeply spiritual in you doing it. Oh, yeah. You and I started talking about, because I started sharing with you my own intuitive journey. And you're like, Ron, I've always known that you're, because I'm the same. And mm-hmm. so how has your intuition and sense of spirit guided you for your years on earth, whether it's through your wellness mm. journey or like just your journey being here on earth in this lifetime? This podcast is 50 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Mira, we're at like 39. I mean, we got some time. So, you know, um, we might you might have to have you come back so we can do just a podcast on that. So. Oh boy, yes, the intuitiveness, the spiritualness, all of that has been, I don't know, I, I, I'm not a religious person, I'll start by saying that. I'm definitely okay. a spiritual person, um, even though I was raised Catholic and went to church every Sunday, my mom used to drive us with pizza after <laughs> church. Needed something to make sure that you went, right? Yeah. <laughs> I have always, I am lucky, Ron, I think you might share this, but I have had mentors in my life that have always looked out for me, starting with teachers in high school, junior high school, uh, arriving to this country, not speaking any words in English. I've always kind of felt cared for. And now I call it the universe and God sometimes, but I tend to call it the universe. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And I believe in the law of attraction and I believe in karma and I believe in paying it forward and giving, you know, just yesterday I was talking to you about that college fair. This, this lady was 70 years old. She should be retired at this moment. Mm. And she was, she's like, I'm going to take a bus to the train, to the train, to the train. And I said, where do you live? And she's like, Brooklyn. I said, I live in Brooklyn. Why don't I just give you a ride to Brooklyn? Then you can take the train. It'll be shorter. Yeah. She was so shocked. And she was like, do you want money? No. And I said to her, you know, Charlotte, I do things because I don't expect anything back. And the universe will repay me. Don't worry about that. And Mm. she was like, oh, my God. And she was so touched. And um, if I ever put point of my life and I say spirituality really held me together or my beliefs and all that stuff was when Hurricane Sandy happened. Yeah, You know, I'm still in the yeah. apartment where I got flooded. Besides the fact that I think I could have lost my life, but I didn't. The amount of love that I received in money, in donations, in a family that came over that was not related to me 
to yeah. dig me out and wow. to dig all the stuff out and how my sisters fixed the apartment. I was out of my house for like um, this place. That feeling is horrible. Yeah, I think that feeling was worse than when I came to this country, not having friends and, you know, so-called family. But that was, right. I think when I reached inwardly the most to kind of mm. like yeah. not having socks, not having a t-shirt, <laughs> losing mm. all of my pictures, all of my memories and things that meant a lot to me was really, really, really rough. But because of that, spirit that I have, uh, which some people call resilience. (laughs) Um, I was able to carry through. I would just get up every day and wear my sister's clothes and, you know, and go to work and not, and then just rebuild. That's one example in my life. I could bring up many more. Yeah. It sounds like, I mean, you're built. I think this is why you and I and each other's lives, right? We're, we're that, person often for a lot of people were incredibly generous, right? Generous. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't expect anything back because I enjoy being generous. I just yeah. really do. And this whole notion that the universe comes back around and it's not even about repayment. It's about understanding the infinite nature of abundance, mm-hmm. right? Is that abundance is always around us. And when you need to tap into it, it's always there. Mm-hmm. Just did we believe it? And do we want it? Not want it. Do we believe it? Right? Because it's there. And do we feel we deserve it? And I think that that has been very key thing for myself Mm. at this space in my life. So what do I deserve? Because the universe will give me anything I want, but I have to feel that I deserve it. And that's also another cultural thing. And that's also another conversation. But, you know, I, I grew up asking for so very little. And being so grateful for what I was giving, you know, thank you for that thing <laughs> or yeah. whatever you want to give me. We're always, I was taught not to complain, not to, you know, but to always be grateful. Yeah. And now I feel like I'm in a phase of my life where I may want to ask for more because at this point, yes, I feel that I deserve it. Yeah. There's this uh, term in Tagalog, which is called Kia. Kia is mm-hmm. shame. And when I think about how shame translated in my own life, it was kind of similar to the way you described not feeling like you should ask for more to be always. I think this is where when I think of like what gratitude should be in principle, gratitude in principle shouldn't be, oh, I, I only deserve so little and just enough, right? Because this idea for me about where, where I love like just enough sometimes because of the way we've grown up may actually not be enough. Right. We may need more. When I think about the very definition of equity, those of us who look like us often need more to even catch up. Oh, yeah. You know what I'm saying? So for me, it's just like, you know, I think about when we were at NYU, like similar to your experience, like I didn't have Willie Long, Ann Blantz, Jennifer Yee, God, um, I'm forgetting Ann's last name, Ann Gazaniga. There are so many incredible folks and they're more alan mcfarlane who was oh, alan. Um, you mm-hmm. know just one of my favorite people and i wrote about him in my book he's my career yoda right yeah. i had um, stephen cruz you know right and i had ivan matos may she rest in peace 
Mm-hmm. You know, I also had those. That's why I said I've been so lucky to have uh, met these people who always said, hey, you deserve more. Right. Hey, you you need to earn more. <laughs> yeah. The first my first NYU job was at NYU in Spain. And I will never forget mm-hmm. this lady. Her name was Lois. And um, she also should have retired when, when I started there. Mm. And um, at the time, she hired me for $8 an hour, which was like, oh, my God, I was making $4 at Strawberry. So I was making double. <laughs> this goes back to like when we were working in the 90s. Yeah, I that my first job when I was 14 was $4 an hour at yeah. 14. I remember. So this this yeah. white woman, okay, right. said to me, no, you should. You are really smart. You work really hard. I'm going to pay you the graduate salary for a graduate student. And I was making $11. But it took someone else to say, you deserve this because I wouldn't have asked for it. I I worked hard for my $8. I worked really, really hard. But there was somebody else who was making more. Um, So definitely what you're saying, really, 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 it makes sense. Yeah. When you said we're getting to that time, I feel like we've talked about so much yet still have a lot more to talk about, but I feel like it's the right time. My spirit says to ask you the bookend question of this podcast, which is, what is your rondering? What's the lesson or value you want to share with the audience today? (sighs) I've been thinking about this a lot and just like what my personal rondering, rondering, just (laughs) anyway. Um, maybe I learned this too late in, but maybe not too late. Let's say, let's not say that Yeah. to always really, I know you probably heard this a million times, but always be yourself, no matter what, show up as yourself everywhere you go. Because if for some reason someone doesn't give you that job or you don't get that opportunity, et cetera, then you don't belong there. You don't belong there if you have to adjust yourself for somebody else. Mm. Yeah. What has that brought you living that rondering, showing yourself everywhere you go? Why that? Because then you don't have to pretend to be somebody else. You don't have to mm. constantly think up of ways of fitting that role. Yeah. You know, it's hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Always maintaining a persona. It's exhausting, isn't it? It's exhausting. And I've done <laughs> that. I did that in corporate America for many, many, many years. Yeah. And, and it just doesn't get you anywhere. You become extremely exhausted of playing a role. Yeah. I have to say, you know, it's really interesting that I had a, a dear friend of mine from high school who I caught up with and said, Ron, one of the reasons why I think you'd have a struggle working in corporate America is that you don't easily fit in a box. I'm like, oh, yeah. I know. I don't, and, and it's why I think I tend to lean towards working in places where inclusion is just something that people like, you know, leaders value at, or the entrepreneurial route where I could define that. Yes. Right. It's just my level of patience, admittedly, for those things. And having done executive search and hiring for so long, I've seen what's inside of many of these places. And I don't know if I often like what I see. I'm being really honest, right? You know, it's the irony of like me having developed a reputation of placing leaders, particularly in K-12 ed and nonprofits, is that you get to learn these orgs, like, you know, it's a blessing and a curse. Similarly, like when people let their hair down to you, you learn a lot. You go, 
tempo, yeah. right? And once again, we as people, cultures are really complex. And I think there are often clear patterns of the ways that cultures and people show up that you have to listen to the way that people show up. Absolutely. Because if you don't, when you get the nuggets of like on occasion, they show up the other way, but the way that they usually show up is the way that they show up. So you have yeah. to ask yourself, is that what you want? And I think a lot of times you and I and folks who look like us have been taught, well, just work on occasion to get that other thing. The mm -hmm. other stuff that just is, that it's just a mechanism. If you want the stability in your life and that paycheck, mm -hmm. that's what you're, that's what you're going to get. And that just mm -hmm. comes with it. And I think you and I, and I particularly see in younger generations as I mentor, get to my age, right? Like Gen Zers, right? Yeah. I had an NYU dinner um, a couple of weeks ago where I took five students out and I was so proud to hear like how deeply rooted they are in social justice, just their projects. I'm like, oh, y'all sleep. I'm like, do, do y'all sleep? <laughs> like, dude, I was like, mind you, I curated and asked for that. That's the kind of student that I wanted to talk to to, yeah. to dinner on my dime, yeah. right? But I was so proud to hear that because I think, like, if I go back to the 90s when you and I and the folks that we hung out mm -hmm. with, I, I don't know it like I think because we saw each other, it felt like it was in abundance, but like in the larger scheme of NYU undergraduates at the time, I don't think that was as common in our generation going to college. Like mm -hmm. every one of me and you and Yumi and David and like you know, Chris and Momora and Mari, I, I mean, you know, and Ayana Richardson and I just mm -hmm. there were a lot of other folks who I don't know if they this is going to sound like either had the courage or the understanding of like why it was so important to see beyond yourself and to mm -hmm. advocate for folks, especially for folks who didn't look like you. I mean, mm -hmm. I think that's something for you and I, it's just such a deeply foundational part of like our being. Like I, the, this concept in Tagalog that I have learned about over the last 15 years, but I've lived through my parents, it's called Tapwa. Mm -hmm. It's our connectedness, shared unity my fate is your fate. There's something about when you understand that value that yeah. when you live it, I don't know how you then see the world any other way than be able to see, yes, there are differences between people, but what we value and we ultimately want, I think we tend to share in common. Yeah, absolutely. I just, it's really, and I think part of the work that I think we all have is to try to like come to a middle ground and understand that the people are on their journeys. It's yeah. not, to, not to judge them, but to understand, to empathize, and then also create boundaries. You don't have to be around everybody. There are certainly people I've been around the last, at my high school reunion, the NYU alumni weekend, like, I'll be clear, like, look, th this may be somewhat controversial to say, but you get this about my, like, everyone likes me. I don't like everybody. <laughs> well, you, you said, yeah, right? But you know, yeah. does everybody like me? Generally speaking, I think that tends to be true. I don't like everybody. Yeah. yeah. But I don't think yeah. they would know because I just don't, I don't like to roll like that. But there's just, I'm like, oh my Lord, there's some people I'm like, oh gosh. <laughs> but they would know because I just don't, I don't like to roll like that. But like, I, yeah. I, keep, I keep, I keep an encyclopedia's worth of knowledge in my head about people yeah. and things. I just do. Right, 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 right. And that's good. And that's good. You don't need to love everybody. No. You don't need to share your energy with everybody. Bingo. 
Exactly. So Yesenia, before we end off, what would you like to promote in your life and your world? Well, I'm still an entrepreneur at heart. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. I don't think that's ever going to go away. Even when I was an NYU student, I was doing a million clubs and all these things. Yeah. So definitely go to my Instagram at chef underscore Jesenia. That's Y-E-X-E-N-I-A. And there I share a lot of recipes and also um, promoting my private uh, cooking classes. So if your organization or any organization or anyone's looking for healthy cooking classes as well or diabetes related cooking classes, yeah, reach out to me. Awesome. Because I am available. Yesenia, I've always been impressed with your spirit, with your generosity, your hustle. Aww. So thank you for being a guest here on Ronderings and thank oh, you. I'm going to sound like the Golden Girls. Thank you for being the friend. <laughs> do, 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 go. I, I don't know. I didn't watch Golden You're Girls like that. definitely one of my favorite people. You know, Aww. one of my family members that we met in the mid 90s. Yeah. So happy for all of your accomplishments. And I read everything your wife writes because I think she's amazing. Yeah, she's better than me. Let's be clear. Like I married up. I, I know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did marry up. She knows that. I know that. Uh, I'm trying my best. But thank you, Yesenia. You're welcome. Thank you. Uh, it was great having you at Ronderings. And folks, we keep coming with the amazing guests. So check us out for future episodes. Peace, y'all. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thank you, Yesenia, for being a guest on the Ronderings podcast. And way, I love the way you left us off at the end with your Ronderings, or as you aptly put it, your Yesenia-ism. Um, you'll need your own podcast, by the way, sooner than later. Is just to show authenticity. Be yourself. Show up as you are everywhere that you go. If that's not a lesson that we can all take, that can be really hard to actualize considering all the external pressures and the ways we have been socialized to believe who we need to be. Obviously for you and I, Yesenia, I think it's done as well, even if we've been imperfect to figuring out how that can look like. But in our adulthood, it's come in handy for showing up the way that we are and having the kinds of careers and lives that we have. So gracias, Yesenia. Check us out on the Ronderings podcast. More amazing guests like Yesenia from my circle and extended circles. Peace.